Good afternoon and welcome to Startup Nation, our weekly podcast that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin Business Innovation Centre, where ambitious founders get support to start and scale new businesses. And at Dublin BIC, we work with startups to get them investor ready and also assist them raise the funding needed to grow their business. I'm Connor Carmody. I hope you'll stay with me over the next hour as we explore emerging trends in the world of technology and business. Today, I want to chat about food and drink, two things that many of us associate with comfort, fun, family and friends. It's not all good news, however, because as I was preparing for this episode, the research shows that we are seeing an ever-increasing burden of chronic disease. It's driven by how the food industry and, by extension, our own consumption habits have evolved. The issues I'm seeing include an over-reliance on processed food, the unhealthy quantities of sugar in our diet. And of course, there are many well-publicized issues around the unsustainability of certain elements of the food industry and, of course, food inequality. So it seems to me that there are enormous opportunities for innovation in this space, an opportunity for entrepreneurs to reimagine our food system, to protect health, unburden the economy from the weight of obesity and chronic disease, protect the environment, and indeed create a healthier nation for all. It's a big ask, but one step at a time, as they say. So today we're going to hear from two entrepreneurs who have set up new and promising businesses that tackle some of the challenges around food and drink. Firstly, we're going to hear from Karen O'Neill, who has developed a new type of alcohol drink made from nothing other than fermented honey, water and yeast. Free from any additives, preservatives, sulfites or gluten, it's tapping into an ever-growing trend amongst consumers who want to eat and drink better, where possible, cleaner, fresher and healthier. Following that, I'm going to chat with Angus Short of Food Marble, who has developed Food Marble Air, a portable breath-testing device that measures hydrogen levels in your breath, and this enables the user identify which foods suit their digestive system. This innovation has serious benefits, and it empowers people to take control and manage their overall health. So I'm looking forward to the episode. Let's get started. Our first guest today, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen O'Neill, founder and CEO of Beacon Batches. Karen, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Delighted to be here, Connor, and thanks for having me on. Karen, get us started. I haven't seen you in about a year or two, but I do remember at the very early stage uh, meeting you when we were on the Innovate programme. But maybe tell us a little bit about you and your background. Sure. I hate saying this because it makes me sound old, but I guess I'm what you would call an industry veteran. Um, a drinks industry veteran. So um, I'm into the t- uh, plus 20 years working in the drinks industry. So I started out about 98, 99, launching Serenifice in Ireland, and we can all remember that. Um, or maybe most of us can't remember that period for a reason. But anyway, um, I launched Serenifice. I did a stint in Diageo, uh, went into Heineken, where I spent most of my career for, for a chunk of that, Connor. I, I did quite well. I got parachuted into Amsterdam to be the global head of cider when Heineken acquired it um, Scotch and Newcastle. Um, and I led out the cider agenda um, globally for, for Heineken. Ultimately came back home, did a couple of years in PepsiCo whilst percolating an idea for doing something really different, which is, which is what, I'm, what I'm doing now in terms of vegan batches. So, so always drinks. Um, always have a passion for this industry and I stayed close to what I do best, I guess. So if I were to look at your career trajectory, you're obviously have done really, really well. My question, I suppose, is what prompted the move then out of the corporate world into a world of entrepreneurship? This is a point in my career where I felt that 
you know, the higher on the proverbial ladder that I was going, um, I nearly felt like as if I was being starved, starved of oxygen. And there was probably an inner entrepreneur in me that wanted to get out. And there's only so much of a corporate environment that can fill that caged animal, I guess, that right. caged entrepreneur. And that coupled with the fact that, you know what, I think I'd run my course with the with the corporate world. And um, there started to be, I felt a sense of, I don't know, like as if my values were being compromised in some way. I felt like I had to show up in a different way than I was willing to show up. That's really interesting. I was talking to somebody earlier this week and they were coming from the drinks industry as well and they had an ethical dilemma and the question they had to consider, was it right for them to continue to promote alcohol knowing that maybe the way it was being done was was potentially harmful? Did you have an ethical quandary? Yeah, you know what? Every now and again I get a pang and, you know, I'm a walking contradiction in many ways because I left the alcohol industry to set up an alcohol drink. But here's something that I'm very clear about. I wanted to do it better. So, you know what, there were certain things that I would have seen that I want, you know, when it came to even the liquid manufacturing, I put nothing in it that isn't something that I wouldn't like to consume myself. So it's as clean as it gets. Secondly, I set up a product or a brand. And in spite of the fact that it is alcohol, I didn't jump ship from a good job to just create another alcohol drink. In many ways for me, Beacon is a platform for change. So it's an invitation for you, for my customers, for my consumers to make better choices in every aspect of their lives. And I genuinely believe Beacon is better. Um, And ultimately, while I stay close to drinks, my real ambition is, so it's a honey-based drink. I haven't told you what it is yet, but it's a honey-based drink. But my real ambition is to convince as many publicans, as many hoteliers, as many restaurateurs, or anybody that actually engages with Beacon to do something to help the bees. And that's what I mean by a platform for change. So yeah, I stuck close to drinks is what I do best, but it's actually deploying my understanding of the drinks industry and trying to be an agent of change within that for something that is good and, and very closely associated with the drink that I've created. So it is alcohol and we'll talk about the product now, but actually when I was reading a little bit about you, it's a collaboration you describe it uh, between you and the bees, which I think is a lovely way of, of describing it. The name Beacon, what's behind that first and then tell us about the product. Yeah, you've given the hint away. Um, <laughs> it is a collaboration between myself and the B. So the B is obvious, the B-E-E. And the brand is K-O-N. Um, so they're my initials, Karen O'Neill. And you know what? It sounds a bit corny, but in essence, that is exactly what it is. So I have given myself the gift of never doing this big, elaborate, strategic document that I used to painstakingly go through when I was in the corporate world. I have one question on a page, which, which is my strategic intent, which is how would a B do it? And it's quite an inspiring question because there's so much we can learn from bees, their behavior and how they show up in the world. And that guides a lot of the behavior of Beacon and of the brand. So very headline, um, headline, Connor, Beacon is not what you think. If you ever, for anybody who's Googling Beacon right now or Beacon Batches, it's not a beer. It's not a cider. It's not a kind of a wine cooler. I've created an entire new category um, and I call it a honey refresher. So it's fermented honey. So there's no indiscriminate kind of almost ethanol base. It's a it's a fermented honey, and that's all that's in it. And then I put infuse it with fresh ingredients. So whether it be ginger and lime, and yes, I quarter the limes and I grind the ginger. Or we have an elderflower and lemon. We have a new um, we have a new flavor at the moment, sea breeze. And I'm most proud about what's not in this product as opposed to what is in it. So there's no sulfites. There's no additives. There's no preservatives. It's as clean as it gets. And it's bottled in a beautiful, I almost call it a bee trophy, but it's an old-fashioned beehive um, shaped bottle. 
um, which pays homage to that collaborator that I spoke about earlier, the bees. So it's alcohol, it, but with a twist and it, it talks to this kind of healthy trend that I, I mentioned at the outset of the show. Um, talk a little bit about what your research found about how people are consuming alcohol or how people are, I suppose, looking to be healthier in their choices. Yeah. So firstly, I don't use the word healthy in association with alcohol uh, and I never did. The industry has gone down the road of no and low, which is moderation. I've gone down a whole other um, route, which is better um, in terms of the ingredients and in terms of the actual product proposition. But the research that I found was that we are all fundamentally consuming differently, yeah. fundamentally consuming differently, both in our food and our drink choices. So the back label has become probably even more important than the front. So what it looks like in terms of that little Disney does brand is probably being relegated to second place versus the story you're telling on the back, both in terms of an um, authentic story, but also how many ingredients are in this and do I recognize them as being either good or, um, or not good for me? So that was the first thing. Young people are not drinking like we, and I'm going to say we, Connor, I'm putting this in the same bucket here, like we did. They're not willing to suffer the hangovers that we did. They're not willing to forego their weekend like we did. Um, So they're either not drinking at all or they're drinking in moderation. Um, And that's something I absolutely encourage. Beacon is not a drink for a sesh like we knew it in the past. It's for a lovely few sociable drinks and where you do not want to go on the wine or don't want to go on the hard spirits, or maybe you don't like the taste of beer. So it is a drink where I welcome moderation. It is a drink that doesn't contain all the crap in it that it's likely to give you the hangover, at least the extreme hangover um, that we suffer through. So it's a lifestyle choice for those that are seeking clean, conscientious alternatives, but don't want to compromise in their entirety on their, on their, on their lifestyle as such. But it's so it seems to me that you're inventing an entire new category. And in fact, you're swimming against the tide or in a different direction because the industry is going towards, you know, zero this and zero that. And they've just the same product, but they just extracted through whatever reason, the alcohol content. Whereas you're actually saying I'm building or developing an entirely new category, which is healthy way of drinking. And at the same time, you're trying to get us to think about our consumption habits, that it's okay to have one or two drinks and stop. You don't have to keep going for the day. You can have one or two and that's it. So there's a consumption question and I guess there's a category question. Yeah. So the category level, so I have a firm held belief that there's a threshold to the category zero um, offering, that there will always be, you know, we are social animals. So whilst we're adjusting our lifestyle, and part of that lifestyle requires moderation, i.e. zero or, or lower. The zero, I think, will play a greater role because it's binary. You know there's nothing in it, and therefore you're choosing. I think the lower is confusing because whether it is the drink driving laws or whether it is what does lower actually mean, it's slightly confusing. So so I do think there's a long-term role for zero, um, but there's you know there's a threshold to that. And I think it's going to be about 2 3% of the market. When it comes to tapping into the changing behaviors, I'm not... The one I'm riding the coattails of that behavior. I'm yes. not driving it. So lives are busier than they've ever been before. We're not willing, as I said, to compromise on tomorrow. Having a few moderate drinks is becoming much more socially acceptable. And actually, the hedonistic lifestyle is not. And then the young people are driving this change more so than yeah. than, than than our generation. You know, they they've got it down pat. They've got the mix right in terms of better products less consumption, fewer occasions, but actually it's blended into a much more 
a kind of a better choice lifestyle. I hate, I really am averse to using the word healthy when it comes to alcohol, but a better choice lifestyle. We're all about entrepreneurship and starting businesses and scaling businesses uh, on this show. And you, having stepped away from the big brand industry where you were hugely successful in your career, you then had to start from the very beginning with just an idea and a piece of paper with your one question on it for yourself. <laughs> and I remember I remember meeting you back then. Talk to me about the journey of developing from that one question on a piece of paper to where you are today, where you're listed all across Ireland and looking to scale up and all of that. Talk about that journey. Yeah, so for me, it starts at the heart. So it's a point of unreasonable conviction. So what was it that I wanted to create that I was going to latch on to, that no matter what, you know, I was going to at least give it all my all and seeing it through. That level of conviction came from one of the reasons why I left Heineken in many ways was was to create a a platform for change that I spoke about in terms of helping and supporting the bees and um, a pollinator program. So I knew I wanted to do something on honey, uh, but that that was the kernel of the thought. That's all I had. I went, you know, I knew it was, there was something in it. So think about it, Connor, Connor, this was gone back nearly eight years ago when I started this thought. And this was before all roads led to honey. So you know you're onto something now when honey appears in your ketchup or when they start to infuse honey with whiskey. So it is the top of the food chain and it is a massive signifier for those conscientious consumers um, and for a better choice. So as a marketeer, my job was to identify trends. And back then, I was like, all these roads are leading to honey. But also, I was really passionate about doing something about the bees. So that was the start of it. So my route was I ran a parallel track. So I took a four-day week, not just for one week, for two years in PepsiCo, where I used that extra day to start to percolate the idea, to actually build out the proposition. I hired a brewer who basically did a mixer for me over a number of years where we started to recipe develop. And that took a year and a half to get the baseline liquid down. So there's some, there's almost magic in the simplicity of this product, which is, which for some unassuming, you think, okay, you're going to ferment honey and it's going to be easy. It's actually not. So I percolated the idea, developed the proposition. I built out the liquid. I knew once I cracked the baseline liquid, as in the core proposition of the honey refresher, that I could blend that and mix it with different flavors. So I knew that that was the crown and glory of the actual product itself. And then once you get in, so here's the point if I'm an, from an entrepreneur, I, I almost had, you know, the imposter syndrome for years where I never even called myself the entrepreneur. And even when we were on the Innovate program, I struggled calling myself an entrepreneur. But it gets to a point where you've racked and stacked so many elements of your plan. So you have a minimum viable product. You have, you've gone out to some customers. You have your packaging visualized, even though it took me a while to actually realize it. You get so far and you've spoken to so many people about it, but there's a tipping point where you're no longer that, you know, you've no longer that imposter syndrome, but you actually start to call yourself an entrepreneur. And then that's where the rolling stone gathers moss and you're like, okay, I've no going back here now. I've said it to too many people. I've put it out there. And, you, and I just rolled with it. So I, you know, I got distribution. I leveraged my network. So for anyone listening here um, today, the network for me is the most important asset and tool that you have. Leverage the network to get distribution. Leverage the network to help me get it manufactured. And then you just roll from there. You roll with the punches and you roll with the, the, the highs and the lows. But it seems to me, you know, going back to this, creating the category or changing trends that, that you're or, or capitalizing on those changing trends and, and leading them in many respects as you're doing with your collaboration. You're you're competing 
in a world of big global giants, big brands, big alcohol producers, are they are they competition or are they collaboration? Do they see you as a threat or do they see you as somebody to work with? I've never really thought about that. I'd like to ultimately think that there's someone there, someone who'll buy me um, or at least buy into me. I don't see it that way. I think there's enough space for all of us. I think actually the consumer dictates. And if I identify another one of the trends is consumers are looking for a story. They buy into a story first and foremost. Yeah. And actually that's something that the big corporates struggle to authentically tell. Yes. Um, whereas I have that story. I'm what they call now an impact native. So my product was only created to create impact, whereas the big corporates are trying to buy that with a checkbook and consumers see through that. So my judge and jury are the consumers. So I don't actually expend any energy thinking about what the corporates are doing. I get frustrated at times when I do think about it because I think largely I would be quite critical, Connor, and I'd be quite critical of the fact that Think of the the deep pockets they all have, and yet none of them could come up with a honey refresher. They come up with a million gins. Was it in their interest to come up with it, though? Well, I think they are blinkered, a lot of them. So, for instance, I remember being insiders uh, and heading up the global cider business. I'm also thinking all we could think of was we needed to take some of the global cider share, and you know, as opposed to thinking what else could we do. Yeah. You know, so if I if I look at what a lot of the big players are doing, how many seltzers have been launched on the back of Mark Anthony launching White Claw? Yeah. Where's the originality in that? It's a wall of sameness, all the same cans, little differentiation, and there's a bloodbath on pricing. So I don't emulate, nor do I wholly respect a lot of the mirroring that's going on from the big corporates. Um, I would love to see something genuinely innovative that actually taps into the insatiable appetite of consumers to give me something different that satisfies that life, that changing lifestyle. Yeah, but it probably comes down to the fact that when you have a, an organisation set up by category, the cider person and the wine person, or the, they just think about that category they're boxed in. and they're boxed in. And there isn't at the top level somebody who says, let's think about it. Maybe there is, but it seems to me somebody doesn't think about innovation at its core and how will we react to the world around us and all of that. But but actually, we're very good at growing cider by 2% year over year over year. And that's yeah. kind of... And I felt boxed in. And that yeah. was one of the reasons why I left. Like, I talked about that entrepreneurially on Animal that I wanted to on, on Cage. Like, to a large extent, they're boxed in. And, and don't get me wrong, there are some really uh, incredible innovation departments. But is there the appetite at the, at the manager level? Now, there is a whole subcategory that, um, that is, is becoming interesting, which is beyond beer. And that, I think, because they've seen the trajectory of, you know, this beyond beer. So whether it be pre-mixed or whether it be uh, seltzers, I think this is going to give rise to some really interesting phase. But also the proven track record of innovation departments is not good in most of the big corporates. They haven't been able to do it themselves. They've had to acquire to actually uh, to build any credentials in this space as opposed to actually build them out themselves. But it allows room for people like you to thrive. Can I ask you about funding because you made a conscious decision not to go the traditional route of of kind of taking on a, a round of funding grow your business and move on you've decided to chart a different course why and how is that going for you up until now <laughs> <laughs> my, t- my 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 tune has changed so yeah look i i fully commercialized this by self-funding 
I got it in my head, right or wrong, and time will tell. I don't know. But I got it into my head that I wanted to prove this myself. Yeah. So I wanted to bring it to a feasibility level where there was a microcosm of a test that demonstrated something. Um, and with what came with that or what would ultimately come with that is at least I felt that it wasn't an evaluation guessing game, that there was some granularity to it. Um, and that was what I could wholeheartedly take to prospective investors to say, this is what I've done. I'm now ready to scale. I've learned the hard lessons. Yeah. I know what I have in my armory in terms of that works, in terms of the toolkit. And I know I have a, a product as opposed to a dud that people want. So that was my drive, my personal drive. I'm there. So actually, my head has just over the last month reached over the parapet to say, okay, what does both the journey of evaluation and the journey of raising funds look like? Um, and I need to do that for two reasons. One is to scale and to scale at the level to realize the potential of the brand that I think I've created. It requires more money than I've ever earned in my entire career. So that's something that I, I realize. I've also realized that, you know, this isn't about me controlling this. This is about me steering it and to steer it and to guide it and to, and to be the custodian of this. I need to bring people in. I need to bring scaled partners in. I need to bring people in who are likely to believe in it as much as I do. And, and the third factor is, is that, and I hate to mention this because we haven't mentioned it at all, but COVID has, restri- has restricted me to a level that I'm not at the stage that I would like to be at two years in. So part of COVID meant that I had to get into a little bit of a holding pattern and that cost me money to get into that holding pattern. So there's a needs must. There's also a relinquishing of control, but also a welcoming of that. And then there's a third thing about realizing the potential. So, so I'm now in the space of going on a massive learning curve because it's not an area I'm familiar with or I'm comfortable with. But it's around that um, investor, uh, really, you know, investor piece. Very good, very good. I have two last questions for you. The first one is. What have you learned over the last couple of years in starting a business, being very comfortable in the corporate world for 20 years, as you said, understanding the ins and outs and then stepping into an entirely different world? What have you learned? What's What shocked you? What have you picked up? Oh, God. I like I don't want to put anybody off if you have an idea. If you have an idea that comes with an unreasonable point of conviction, i.e. there's something in you, you that's driving you. I would say to everybody to do it. But my God, is this the hardest thing I have ever done? And I like the challenges I've faced in the last two years. I don't know how I'm still sane. And I often say that I'm walking a tightrope and I haven't learned to walk this tightrope. All I've learned to do is get back up every single day. Um, so what have I learned? I've learned, and it, these are all very deeply personal I learned quite quickly and I've tried to apply it since that I need to build a level of resilience that means that I won't give up even when I'm I think I'm facing my hardest day. Yeah. So there's a little known story, Connor, that when I started this journey, I I started to to do something quarterly that frightens the living bejesus out of me. And I do it in a way that I don't think I can achieve it. So whatever I pick off, I don't think I can achieve it. And some of them are personal. So Originally, when I started this journey, I signed up for a triathlon. I gave myself eight weeks to train. I was fit, but I wasn't super fit. But the thing was, I couldn't swim. Right. So I learned to swim in the eight weeks. And I I got out of the Shannon River. I'll never forget it. And I, you know, I, I thought, my, my, so it's about training your brain. 
So train your brain to overcome whatever obstacles that you think are there because the, the stats are against us in terms of entrepreneurs. And you, and you need to learn a level of resilience. That's the first thing. The second thing is I've gotten very good at being very comfortable with imperfect progress. Yeah. So I favor momentum over perfection. And as long as I move forward daily and I talk about it, I often talk about a a daily breakthrough. So it's not about me grinding out 10 hours on a laptop to get an outcome, but it's about getting a breakthrough a day that I know is going to move me on, which kind of leads me to my third thing, which is managing my energy, not my time. So I don't want to be wholly consumed by being an entrepreneur. Um, I nor do I think it needs to be it needs to be this 15, 16 hour day. Now, don't get me wrong. There's days when I do that, but it doesn't consume me. I manage my energy and I go with that. And that's when you get the best of me and like and the likely best response. So they're the kind of learnings that I've that I've taken. They're, they're, they're all uh, deeply personal. I mean, right now I'm even on a learning journey. For the first time in my career, I've hired an executive coach last month because I've struggled over the summer. And uh, I struggled because my tank was empty. I was like, wow, God, where, like, I'm the person who comes up with the answers. And yet it's hard. So one of my retrospective learnings would be, should I brought someone on sooner? Because this journey is lonely. And to do it on your own is too hard. Tough. And the second one is, and I mentioned already, I really believe in the power of a network. And I actually, for the last few months, haven't leveraged that enough. You know, so... I could go on all day. I could actually write a book on learnings, but they're probably the three core ones and the two evolving ones that I have. Lovely. And, I, I, you know, you say they're very personal, but actually the resilience one comes up every time we talk to somebody. But I love the one about the, the training your brain and frightening yourself and picking a challenge for yourself. They're lovely. While they're personal to you, I think they also have broad universal appeal to anyone who's going through this entrepreneurial journey and, and our listeners will recognize them. Last question, what's the vision for the future? When I meet you in a couple of years' time and you come back on to tell us, what's the vision? What are you going to be looking like in a couple of years' time with this business? Yeah, so I'll I'll rephrase it. It's less about the business and it's more about the impact. So my original dream was that everywhere Beacon of Soul, something's happening to help the bees. And I like the idea of having a legacy play that's, that I can be really proud of. And if I have scaled that thought and used my convincing power to persuade the audience that I know all too well being the trade, the publicans, the off-license owners, all that, to, to jump on board this kind of, this the bee pollinator train, I think that's kind of cool. I need to uh, apply a worldly view to that and actually try and reach as many corners of this world as I can in doing so. And I think that's, for me, that's a better choice than the one that I was on on that corporate ladder. Fantastic. What a lovely way to finish us off. Karen, thank you so much for coming in today and for sharing your story. And that was Karen O'Neill of Beacon Batches. So some great lessons from Karen there on resilience, challenging yourself and the idea which I really loved is that she's not just building a business, but she's looking to make a change in the world. And that's a kind of a super way to look at entrepreneurship. And our next guest, I think, is doing something very similar. So I'm delighted to be joined this afternoon by Angus Short, who's the CEO and co-founder of Food Marble. Good afternoon, Angus, and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on the show. Maybe to get us started, 
tell us about you and your background, because are you the typical entrepreneur or did you find your way into it? Um, yeah. So, I mean, for me, I've kind of come in from uh, like as a teenager, I had like a web design company and just as the internet, like, you know, kind of going back. So that's about 20 years now, actually. But, you know, the internet was starting to become a bigger thing. And um, I was just trying to even understand how all this fits together. And I mean, I've always had a sort of maybe a bit of an entrepreneurial streak and, um, so I set up a web design company, uh, with my brother and, and we were doing web hosting and, and that sort of thing. And, but it kind of turned into one of those sort of enterprises where I was doing all the work and he was getting all the money. So <laughs> uh, not an so, equitable share of spoils. Yeah. 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 So that, that wasn't working out too well, but you know, for me, it, it's funny. I ended up doing engineering in, in, in college. So I did mechanical engineering, um, as a degree and, I ended up doing electrical engineering as a, as a PhD and it was with, with a focus kind of around renewable energy and some of these sort of, some of these topics that are still really interesting to me, but um, I, I was kind of coming out of that actually. And um, it was my, well, my girlfriend at the time, but my, my now wife uh, called Grace, she had been, she'd been through a pro like she was having these digestive symptoms, which were just really troubling to her and to, and to me as well. And um, she was, missing days of work and she was kind of avoiding events and 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 really just having a really hard time with it without understanding why with it yeah so there's just this uncertainty there's you know like it seemed to be linked to food so you know uh but she she's trying to figure it out and she, she she'd gone to a number of doctors and dietitians and she'd been like at this point she'd been she'd been on a couple of medications and I could see externally that it didn't seem to be helping in terms of her kind of digestive symptoms, but it was also just really like messing with her head because a lot of these, a lot of these medications for the gut, the, the gut is so connected to the brain that if you alter the, the gut, you, you start to alter mood, you start to alter people's feelings. And, and uh, so she was having a really hard time with it. And yeah, I, I suppose for me, I just wanted to see, what's out there. I just couldn't believe that she'd gone through this process with clinicians who were trying their best, but ultimately, you know, she was still quite unwell. Um, and she'd gotten this diagnosis of IBS, which is just a really common, a common diagnosis. Broad diagnosis. Very, yeah. It's yeah. And as I've learned, it's really a very much an umbrella term covering um, hard to diagnose digestive issues that don't have a very clear cause um, but it affects a lot of people. You know, it's probably about one in eight people in Ireland and around the world. Um, and so she was in this difficult situation and I could see, because I still had access to the research literature from, you know, from doing the PhD and I went to see, okay, look, what, what are people doing? Like, what is the cutting edge research? What's coming out of what's coming out of, um, academia, and at that time, over in a university in Australia, there was um, this this approach was emerging where if you could identify which foods were once once they get down into your into your gut, foods that were were fermenting really rapidly, and so they're they're leading to lots of the gas production and all of these complex processes happening. Like if you could identify those foods and cut them out, that you could see a big improvement in symptoms. So, so how, so, and this is the, the, the genesis of your product, I guess, but how do you identify 
how they're fermenting and which ones to keep and which ones to get rid of. What's the trigger? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, the, the kind of traditional approach or the approach they were, they were using was, okay, you could just eat something and see how you feel, um, which you can do, but, you know, digestion is complicated and it, it happens over many hours. And the effect of, of what you ate six hours ago might be, you know, happening now in terms of symptoms. So it's very hard to, disambiguate what exactly is it that from a food perspective that could be triggering you know whether that be bloating or abdominal pain or other digestive symptoms so having understood the problem and your wife is very lucky she married a phd scientist one would argue you then set about trying to figure out how to how to analyze i guess uh, and and to understand the triggers yeah, well, I could see from the research that people were doing that they were doing breath testing in that research context, you know, to as part of this research. And I could see that this could be an indicator of because on the breath, you're picking up. Like, so if you eat food and it's not being fully digested, the bacteria will, in your gut will break it down. They'll break it down. And that's what ferment, that's all the, what, what fermentation is in this case, it breaking down the food. It produces these gases, but the gases end up on the breath. So you can pick up, you can pick up these gases on the breath. So you can measure how much fermentation is happening um, in your gut from the breath. And is that regardless of whether it's a good fermentation to use that or a, a, a bad fermentation, whether your body's reacting or not, all of the time these gases are present. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, so the, the, the big it, the issue is really around how rapidly this is occurring. And, it, you know, the, the thing is for people with with uh, some of these digestive issues like IBS, they're inside their gut. They are hypersensitive to to where the, the wall of where the intestine gets inf- inflated, where it gets distended. So so when these gases are produced, they start to feel these symptoms very easily. So, for, you know, for, for, for me or you, you know, we you know we could eat something and, and even though our gut might start to swell up we, we we won't feel it because you're not supposed to feel it you're not supposed to feel like once food gets down beyond you know you know to a certain point in your in your food pipe if you want to call it that there shouldn't be much sensation it it's designed that way but but for a lot of people there's some sort of mix up between the brain and the gut and uh, those signals get misinterpreted. So when your when your gut starts to swell up, they feel pain much more rapidly. Um, and it, it's not like they feel pain to like if you pinch them, they're not going to feel pain any more strongly than anyone else. But it's just inside their gut. There's this hypersensitivity. Fantastic, very clear. So you developed the air, um, which is a pl- which is a play on words, and um, and on what what is it? What does it do? Yeah, so to so, so the, the device itself, it's measuring the levels of fermentation that's happening in your gut through the breath. So, so from fr- fr- like you know, back then, I you know, I just created a prototype uh, to for Grace to use, and and she was finding it very beneficial, and that's really where. It, it, you know, I was like, okay, you know, again, that entrepreneurial streak. I was thinking, okay, this is something that affects a very large number of people. It's a major problem in their lives. If, even if they're not getting what they need from the healthcare system, 
they might be able to manage it from the home. So that's where that's where it kind of grew out of. And yeah, so it was really about uh, if I can get a team together and build something at, at a kind of a level where you could sell to consumers, that could help a lot of people. And how does then, how do you take that from, I have this idea, it would possibly be very beneficial to my wife and, and possibly to others. How do you take that and take it off the drawing board into production, move it along? That's kind of like, it sounds like a, a fairly straightforward process. Well, we'll develop it and we'll move. But actually there's, there's years of science gone into this. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, there's a couple of years of development, even even just myself trying to get from a very basic prototype to a more advanced prototype. But even then, it wouldn't be close to something that you could release to, you know, as a product. Um, so I got a team together and, you know, we, we applied for this accelerator program um, that, uh, you know, Sean O'Sullivan runs out in out in China. Um, it's called Hacks. <laughs> And um, we got in and it was great. Like, it's just such an enabler because then we were able to, you know, take our pretty basic prototype, go over there and, you know, really be just surrounded by, uh, you know, manufacturing and, and, you know, being able to take, like, this, this is in Shenzhen, which is a part of China where there's just electronics everywhere and the, the, you know, the, the, the capability to bring technology through to something much more advanced is just, you know, much easier. So that was a big enabler for us. Did you relocate over there? Yeah. So we, we relocated for, so myself, I was over there for six months uh, and uh, my CTO, he was probably there for a year, uh, tr- you know, trying to, you know, really get through the, the, the process, but yeah, we basically went over there and had to kind of do the development. Which is a big, big investment of time and relocation and family and all of that sort of stuff. Like, so you've, you've put you've put in the hard yards on the journey. Yeah, yeah. And, and on an absolute shoestring, I think we were paying ourselves something like probably 10 euros a day. Uh, <laughs> it's really nothing. Like we had to live on noodles basically for, for the time. <laughs> so having... Having gone over there and the the help from Sean and, and hopefully we'll be talking to Sean in a couple of weeks at an event we're we're planning to run. Um, the step then was was having kind of nutted out, if you will, the process and the engineering and the hardware. You then you then came back home to start kind of thinking. Well, now it's time to start scaling. Yeah, so we we were kind of at a point where we'd something that would be ready for manufacture. So something we could take the the plans and and, and give them to a manufacturer. Um, but you know, we, I suppose for us, we want, we didn't truly know whether this was going to be big or not. Like, is this something that people actually want? Um, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're like, oh, well, of course they want it. It's amazing. What it, but you know, do, do people truly want it? So, um, we did it, we did a pre-order campaign. Um, so that was kind of late 2017 and, um, we just wanted to see, okay, what, are, what's the level of interest? We launched it and yeah, we got about 8,000 pre-orders. So we got like, you know, about a, you know, a million, about a million dollars worth of pre-orders. Um, so I guess for us, that gave us a bit of validation from a commercial perspective that, okay, there's, there is that market of people out there who, who, who want this sort of technology. Um, so we did the pre-orders and then, you know, over 2018, then we we're able to ship out all those pre-orders. Um, and then launched at the end of 2018. 
just so I understand how the device works, because you, there's an actual physical piece of hardware that I get, and then it's linked to it's linked to an app on my smartphone, I guess. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, the way it works is with the together with the device and app, you're in the app, you'll record your meals. Uh, so you record your breakfast, lunch, dinner um, and uh, in the app. And then you're taking breath tests in between the meals. Um, so that in that way, you're tracking how well you're digesting the food, those meals. And in the app, if you see an increase in in, in the breath readings, the app will basically show you um, which foods or or and also like what inside the foods seem to be driving that response. So it, it's, what's the science behind that in the background? I'm trying to get I've eaten a big bowl of curry and then I've had a bowl of cornflakes and then I've had something else. What are you looking for, I guess, is what I'm after as I as I do my breath test? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good question. So um, we've got we've got a food database where we know what's inside lots of different foods. And then, so when you log the meal, we know, you know, what's in there. And, and then when, based on the timing of your breath tests and the timing of when you ate your meals and what's in the meals, then we're able to basically to determine what are the most likely foods to cause that issue. And so we can highlight them to you. Just digressing for a moment, what would the medical profession say? Would they say, well, you're well-meaning amateurs or would they say, no, actually, this is this is validated? Yeah, well, it's a technology that's been used uh, for quite a long time. Like breath testing as a tool has been used for, for decades in clinical practice, but it's tended to be limited to, you know, uh, say lactose intolerance testing. So that's commonly done with a breath test uh, or, you Zebo. know, well, yeah, so SIBO is an interesting one as well. So SIBO is something, it's emerged more recently. So this is where you've got bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. Um, so that's it, it's used a lot for, for SIBO as well. And so, you know, the, the big difference for us is that, um, you know, A, when it, comes to, when it comes to food sensitivities, we can track you during the day and help you to get a lot more information. So you're not just doing one test on one component. Um, but then something like SIBO, which is a condition that, um, uh, you know, like a particular condition that, you know, um, where it can be treated and you can you can kind of uh, recover from that. Um, so we're increasingly working with clinicians where they can perform the SIBO testing on their patient, but the patient can be at the home, they can be at home. So it means that you can do that in, in, in a much more convenient way. Yeah, because uh, in, in the traditional sense, you go to somebody, a clinician, a, a hospital setting, they do the breath test, they give you the result, the consultant looks at it, and a month later, you're kind of getting your results and all of that. Whereas what you're doing is providing an ability, if linked to a clinician, for ongoing breath tests and to do kind of regular monitoring. Yeah, exactly. Because in a lot of cases, people will, um, they'll do one test and they'll get some information, but it's, it's only a very partial picture of what's happening. So we want to give people that broader picture and kind of put them in the driving seat to an extent and, and, and have that assistance of a clinician where, you know, where they want to do that. So, um, yeah, just that ongoing monitoring, we feel that's much more powerful. So if I was at home using the device, I'm doing my breath test maybe three times a day after a meal in between my next meal. And it, the app is telling me 
that wasn't good for you don't do that one again or it's telling you actually eating bread is good for you you're okay with that keep on going with that I'm getting a real time report on my on my diet yeah exactly so so it's giving you that sort of feedback where you know actually there there weren't high fermentation levels so it looks like what you ate recently is you know doesn't seem to be problematic or vice versa where maybe because like in a lot of cases especially when it comes to digestive problems you get so um anxious about all it because it, it's so unclear what foods are actually causing a problem that in a lot of cases people are cutting out almost everything <laughs> yeah yeah because because i don't know what to leave and what to so i just use a blunt instrument and i say well i'll just cut everything out yeah yeah so so you get people and it, it, it's very restrictive diets so in a lot of cases it's about giving people the confidence to open up their diet and eat a more diverse diet Wow. And, it, you know, you were saying there it's a huge issue because you I think you said one in eight people. Uh, I was looking at uh, something, you know, 2018, which was the last one. I think you reported 134 billion spent on gastroenteral. So it's a huge it's a huge issue for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a massive issue. And you can see where it affects the patients themselves um, or, or, or the, you know, the, the consumers at home. Um, you know, it's a big cost for healthcare systems. So, you know, you, you think of both kind of health systems like the HSE or the NHS or, or, or like uh, private health insurers, mm-hmm. they're, they're spending a lot of money because you've got people, they've, they've unspecified digestive issues. They're trying lots of different tests. That's costing a lot of money to the health system. And very often at the end, they're no better. So um, I think we can help from a lot of angles. So when you think about you know, your kind of scaling strategy, it's not just about selling direct to consumers, although there's huge appetite for that, but it's also then working with the medical profession and other channels that you become integrated in there, I guess. Yes, no, absolutely. And and we've we've done some early work there. Uh, and we've we there's quite a few clinicians now who are offering the device to patients. And you know, especially when you 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 look at COVID, which has been dragging and dragging, but um it's very hard to bring pay. You don't really want to bring patients into the, into the hospital or the clinical context. So being able to do that remotely is just much more powerful for them. So they get access, I presume they get access then to the back end or to the patient's results and can talk almost in real time to a patient and say, well, look, I saw what happened over the last week. Uh, I'm in agreement with what, you know, don't do this, do more of this, do less of this. That's exactly right. So they'll get it. They have a dashboard and they can see the results coming through. And it's just a very nice way for them to have that sort of overview uh, and to give that sort of feedback to the to, to the patient. Wow. So I think I understand the science. Talk about the the actual building of the business, because what you're doing arguably is difficult. It's both a hardware and a software play. Has that been has that been challenging as you've been as you've been building? Absolutely. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, why would anyone ever start a combined <laughs> hardware, software, medical? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you've ticked all the difficult boxes there in one go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's de- definitely very challenging. And, you know, you need a lot of people. It, it takes, a, you know, we've got over 30 people in the company. And, um, you know, initially that would have just been a very small team. But, um, you know, that that the hardware side is challenging enough, and you know we've got a team working on that side, and and you know we've got we've actually got a, our, our next generation devices coming out soon, so there's a lot of focus on that as well. But the like when you think about where we can go, like when you're you're capturing all of all of this data, and you know uh, to be a, for the users to be able to get 
like we we're, we're starting to apply different techniques to give richer feedback to the users so so we can give them as much value as possible and and also make it as simple as possible for them to like because we can make it more convenient because we can we can show them well you know for you now would be a good time to take a breath test like so so you get to become more specific in what in in both what you're asking people to do and also what you're telling them in response so you become not just the provider of a piece of hardware that tracks, but you could become the predictor and you could use that data, understand it and say, Connor, I've looked at your history and if you do what you normally do, there's going to be a problem. So we suggest you do the following. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that's the path where we're, we're going towards where we can start because, you know, ultimately what we care about is the person getting to the end of the process and and feeling better and where they can on an ongoing basis, manage, you know, manage their symptoms and, and just ultimately be feel a lot better. So there's a lot of elements to, to that. And, and, you know, if you can, if you can help them in the long term make those food-based decisions, that's the ideal. And is there not, from a consumer perspective, have you not baked your own obsolescence in? And I'll explain what I mean. You, <laughs> I, I buy the product. I figure out my eating pattern and then I stop using because I say I'm Angus has fixed me I'm cured so I don't need I don't need that anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, ideally if we, if we can get people from a place where they're feeling a lot you know a lot of negative symptoms and they're feeling much better, that's that's what we want to do. Uh, it's not always so simple because in a lot of cases with digestive issues, you can for example, you'll have people come in and they they might have um, SIBO or something like that, and you know the, the the clinician can treat them, and they they that aspect is resolved. But you know they they might then have to still figure out food sensitivities, so that could be sometimes a second stage. And you know for for a lot of people, you know it comes down to where the kind of the mix of all of those gut microbes, so all of the you know mix of bacteria in our gut, sometimes is just not what it should be. And so, you know, we expect that in some cases, there's going to be a bit of a longer term aspect where we can guide people through a process of getting effectively healing their gut through through improving that mix of gut, uh, their gut microbes mix. Um, So, yeah, I mean... (laughs) You know where we can become obsolete. That's fine because there's there's a lot of people affected, and for us, if we can make people feel better, and you know they're gonna they're gonna tell other people about their experience, and that's the best possible outcome for us. If we can if we can make people feel better, and and you know just just keep growing from from, from that perspective. Fantastic. Can I switch to funding, Angus? Uh, and I know you're very busy at the moment, but but your funding journey. I mean, you've raised both through crowdfunding, through, as you mentioned, SOSV. You've been here with local funders. I mean, you've been, you've been almost on the, on the journey for the last three or four years, raising as you go. Yes, yeah. So, so, so we, yeah, we've, we've had a number of rounds and, you know, it is, it can be chat like for any, any, any startup that requires funding to get to the place they need to be. Um, it's a long road. It's a hard road. You know, we've raised over 5 million euros in total. Uh, and we're, you know, we're fundraising again. So it's, it's definitely a challenge, but, you know, well, you know, ultimately if you're doing something of value, for, you know, for, for people and, you know, they're willing to pay for it, there is that sort of market in terms of investors into companies like us. And 
the pitch to investors, I guess, uh, has been and hasn't really changed uh, is that this is a major unresolved or unserved market around gut and gut syndrome. And you're the first guys that have, have come up with this kind of position to crack it. Is, is it a competitive field? It, it, there's definitely people coming in because it is, it's, it's an important issue. It's a big issue. There's people coming in, but there's no one who, because we've done a lot of the hard yards around the technology. So, you know, you have people coming in and they have kind of maybe just purely app-based tools where, you know, you can track symptoms or maybe you can tr- track your, your, you know, your meals. Um, but we think it's very important to be able to look inside to see, you know, what's actually happening in your gut. And, you know, we think that's where we add that extra bit of value uh, to people. And and presumably what you've developed thus far is patented and it's protected and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So we, we've, we've got we've got a patent in the US and the UK and our European patent is in, in progress. Um, yeah. And there's definitely some value to that. I think that the, the ultimate protection is where if the actual offering that we're like, if the actual service we're providing to to patients and to consumers is better is is substantially better than other people that's the best for, you know, commercial protection we can provide very good uh i have two questions left angus and thanks for your time uh with us this afternoon um i suppose the first one is around uh you know, the journey that you've been on and it's a hardware and a software very challenging with the data piece built in what have you learned along the way or what did you think or what do you think now that you didn't think when you were starting this out? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, learn, we learn a lot every day uh, for sure. It's a very, it's very challenging. Um, I think, I think it really helps when, when you, you, you know, you have the support group around you where, you know, I think I'd encourage anyone who's starting a company and they're thinking about their team. I think it's very important to have those initial co-founders um, because, you know, they're the people who will bring you along the way. So I think that's important to really think very hard about that initial who's initially, you know, who's on the bus to get started. Right. And, and, and you just, you know, it's, it's, and, and as that develops and, you know, you're hiring people, you know, we've be, we've we've had really good luck in terms of in terms of a hiring. Like we take we just take it very seriously, and and, and it's probably annoying sometimes to, uh, <laughs> to 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 sometimes the candidates that uh you know we you know we we go into quite a bit of detail, but uh you know that's that's really one of the places where you can fall down if if you hire to you know in a in a if you're not if you don't have a robust hiring process and you don't take that seriously enough. And it's not just about the technical skills, it's about the fit, it's about the values, it's about the shared yeah. journey that they, everyone is going to go on. Um, there's a lot, yes. there's a lot in that hiring. And, and, you know, we were talking to Karen this morning and she had, she had mentioned about the, uh, the kind of the sole founder versus the team. And that really comes up all the time that doing this by yourself is a difficult, it can be a very difficult sort of a task. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it, I mean, yeah, I definitely respect people who go it alone, but it's, uh, you Tough. know, it's it's tough. Definitely. Last question: What will what does the future hold for you, Angus? What are you going to look like uh, as you grow up, as they say, over the next five years? Yeah, so you know, we're we're, we're definitely we're going to expand the team. We're going to, you know, I think for us, it's really about becoming that sort of go-to solution. Where if you know, for people who have digestive problems, um, they can they you know they can go through a process from start to end, and you know, by the end of the process, they feel better and at least they have their symptoms under control. Um, so that's where we want to go. And, 
you know, looking out a bit further, even if we can be a device in the home that people can use more generally for their health, because there's lots of there's lots of molecules on the breath that relate to, you know, can be indicators of, you know, potential illnesses or diseases um, or or that can be used to track the pro. Like if, you, if you're going through a process in relation to an illness, it would be incredible if we could become a tool in the home that gives you those early warning signs if there's a serious illness coming. So that's that that's something we're conscious of. And and we realize that a lot of a lot of these really serious human health challenges start in the gut. So if we can pick up those early signs, that could be really powerful. Fantastic. Angus, uh, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and and for sharing with us and uh, the very best of luck as you grow the company into the future. Thank you very much. It was, it was a delight to be on the show. Thanks a million. That's Angus Short of Food Marble. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed hearing how our entrepreneurs are coming up with ideas and how they're setting up businesses, how challenging it can be, but also how rewarding, as we heard there from our contributors. I'm sure you'll join me in wishing our guests today every success in their ventures. We hope that the stories you heard today and across our Startup Nation series will inspire you to give it a go. If you have a great idea and are thinking of starting or scaling a company and you would like some support, do get in touch with us at startup at dublinbic.ie. That's it now from Startup Nation.